It's Back to the Future as U.S.-Iran nuclear talks kick off in Vienna. Jared and I will give you a preview of the national debate to come. Plus, two special guests this week. We talked to an Israeli actress and author, Noah Tishby, about her new book, Explaining Israel to the Masses. And we'll talk with journalist Maggie Haberman from the New York Times about her journey and the times we live in. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 10, I guess technically season 2, episode 2 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, how was your Passover? It was great. We were, my family was out in the desert, which is, uh, I guess, apropos. Uh, we were out in Utah and uh, we were f- with a stopover in Houston for a Seder. And we had uh, Chabad of Salt Lake City supported us out in the desert. Um, and it was a great trip. How about yours? Uh, it was great. Uh, wonderful to be uh, back with our uh, fully vaccinated parents. Uh, and uh, also great to see baseball back with people in the stands. Uh, go Cubs. <laughs> I mean, it's only a matter of time before the Yankees are in first place. So I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to say that the Cubs are going to win the World Series this year, but uh, I still like the chances of a playoff berth. We'll see if uh, the early uh, rockiness uh, sorts itself out. Well, hot luck to them, and uh, go Yanks. All right. Well, our big topic of the week before we get to our two amazing guests is Iran talks underway in Vienna. Indirect talks, albeit, uh, between the United States and Iran, with the European Union acting as a go-between with a little shuttle diplomacy out there. Early reports reports are that the U.S. is offering a few billion dollars in oil sanctions relief in exchange for Iran pausing uranium enrichment at 20 percent uh, as a first step in the sequencing of both parties going back uh, into the full JCPOA, as it's called, the Iran nuclear deal. I think there are a lot of questions here, my perspective, Jared. Uh, I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, some of the challenges that they're going to face, especially out of Congress in coming days, how are you proposing exactly to give Iran sanctions relief for oil when its oil company and the central bank are under sanctions for terrorism, not its nuclear program? And that had been a commitment uh, that the administration had made previously that they weren't going to lift terrorism sanctions. How are you giving Iran any sanctions relief when the International Atomic Energy Agency is telling us that Iran is actively concealing nuclear material and sites and activities Uh, that we still need answers to. Uh, Sort of a little bit, doesn't make a lot of sense to give Iran money and go back to a nuclear deal that allows Iran to hide nuclear things. And then finally, of course, you'll have a very sensitive topic of what happens to the American hostages that are still in Iran, and does part of this deal include them being released? Jared? I mean, I think you bring up good points. And, uh, you know, I think we should probably mark the date and time that I said that um, because it doesn't happen all too often. But I I, I do think (laughs) I I do think that uh, the Biden administration is going to have to answer these questions, um, at least the first two. Right. To do anything. Um, Those are are table stakes, so to speak. Um, They're going to have to address how they're going to comply with American law. Um, 
in even in this interim step uh and they're gonna have to explain to the world how uh they are gonna deal with the iaea and 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 the allegations that they've made and i I don't expect this initial step to be the end-all be-all um because it is just an initial step but it's listen they have uh, to prove to folks like yourself who are incredibly skeptical of the biden foreign policy and the obama foreign policy before it they're gonna have to prove to you that what uh, President Biden said on the campaign trail uh, that he is serious about uh, stopping the threat of Iranian nuclear weapons, that he's serious about that. And, uh, you know, I think I mark it an incomplete so far. Yeah, listen, and I understand. I hear some of the whispers from those inside the administration and their perspective on this. They're saying, listen, we just got to get Iran back in the box. We just got to get this crisis over with. Let's kick the can down the road. We have China. We have Russia. We have other things to deal with. Why can't we just go back into this nuclear deal, put them back in the box for a little while? We'll deal with sunsets. We'll deal with all this stuff later. I think that's a a large driving factor. And I would just say back to them, I think that flooding this regime with cash to subsidize a lot of their terror activities is just going to become a distraction throughout your term as they have more money to do nefarious things throughout the region. We'll see how that turns out. One thing I would note, Jared, is if listeners go back to episode two, way back when in January, I praised Secretary of State Tony Blinken when he told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that he would not lift terrorism sanctions on Iran. He's on the record. We played it here on the podcast. Uh, And to turn around now, if those are on the table, that's going to be a big disappointment. Well, listen, fortunately, he has uh, the Republicans Republicans in the Senate, Republicans in the House, folks like yourself to, to cast as the bad cop as he negotiates with the Iranians. And so, you know, you're doing your patriotic duty by, by calling out the Biden administration and, and hopefully allowing them to get the best possible deal to ensure the United States' security, Israel's security, and the stability of the region. Okay, we could talk about this for hours. We probably will at some point. Uh, but for now, let's get on to our first guest of the week. Noah Tishby was born and raised in Tel Aviv and served two and a half years in the Israeli army before she landed a starring role on the nation's highest rated primetime drama, Ramat Aviv Gimel. She became a household name in Israel, appearing in numerous TV shows, films, theater, productions, and national fashion campaigns before she moved to Los Angeles, where she sold the Israeli TV show In Treatment to HBO. It was the first Israeli television show to become an American series. And this week, while we're having her on the pod, she's out with her first book, Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth. Noah Tishby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Jared and I were privileged to get a little sneak peek at the book uh, that's out this week. Uh, my favorite review from Bill Maher, Not Your Bubby's History Book. Uh, first off, let's take a step back. What drove you to write this book in the first place? Well, that's a, a great question. What The reason I wrote this book is because I've been, I've been looking for this book. So I've been, um, throughout my the past like 10 or 15 years um, in my work in the entertainment industry, I've been, I found myself many times talking to people about Israel and explaining Israel, taking to people to Israel for trips and whatnot. And I kept getting asked, like, do you have a book to recommend? Do, do you have something that I can easy, but like that I can read, but something that's like easy. There are a lot of amazing books about is about Israel, as we know, you know, anywhere from Betty Maurice to Ronan Bergman to Thomas Friedman, and they're all incredible, but they're slightly on the heavy side and people want to get the meta conversation and they want to get it quick in a way that's relatable. And I'm like, I don't think there's a book out there that makes it 
easy, simple, not simplistic and make it easy to understand. And I'm like, that book doesn't exist. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to read and I'm just going to write it. Now, do you think uh, there's a lack of female voices in this space, writing about Israel and writing about Israeli history? I'm a father of a young daughter, and we're trying to raise her the right way, and, and I'm really in tune to these issues, but it seems to me that there's a lack of, of females writing about this this topic. You know what's shocking? When I actually did the proposal for the book, um, you have to do something that's called competitive analysis. So you have to write all the other books in the field and how much you know, how many copies they sold, and... Um, I wrote about all these incredible writers and authors. And at some point I'm like, all right, where, where are the women authors? And I went, wait, where, where are the women authors? And I realized that there has never been a book about Israel's history that was wow. written by a woman. Um, if you exclude, by the way, Golda Meir's biography and uh, Professor Anita Shapira, who's an Israeli historian, who's had a couple of books translated from Hebrew to English in the 80s and 90s, that's literally it. So I realized very early on that this is the first history book about Israel to be written by a woman. The only two people who knew about this, because everybody, when I told people this, they went, nah, no, that's not, that's impossible, right? Um, the only two people who knew about this were uh, one person who is booking um, panels and talks about Israel and couldn't find female panelists. And the other one is a person that is actually um, um, stocking up on libraries. And she's also committed to doing 50-50 women and male authors. And she also knew that as well. So it's pretty shocking, but but it's true. This is the first Israel, a history book about Israel written by a woman. And Noah, you, you, you mentioned several of this, these books in this genre that have come before, uh, and they all have a very different kind of audience. Some might be for academics. Some might be for a college student activist on campus who's facing anti-Israel propaganda and trying to figure out how do I respond. This is not for activists, it seems like. It's not for the college campus. It's not for the heavy political people reading Politico and Axios. When you were writing this book, in your mind, who is your target demographic? Um, first of all, I I kind of disagree. I think this is very much for college campuses. By the way, Noah, I love people who disagree with Rich Goldberg. It makes me happy and warm in my heart. So thank you for doing it. <laughs> yeah, listen, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm a highly agreeable person when it's my opinions. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. So I, I did write this for college. I really did. And in fact, the Hillel International read this and called me up and were like, oh my God, we need this book. And I said, yeah, I wrote this book for you. So definitely wrote this for a younger skewed audience, meaning 18 to 35, I would say, if you have a, a, a you know, if you are that age or you have a child or a grandchild or a friend that age, that's for you. Slightly skewing liberal because I am a liberal. And to me, if you are a person who likes, um, you know, democracy, freedom of speech, human rights, LGBTQ plus rights, any kind of rights, you should really support Israel within the context of the Middle East. And, um, and, um, and, and also I got a lot of incredible feedback from serious political and historian, like historical, like historians and people that are interested in that topic, whether it's um, Yossi Klein-Halevi, who gave me an incredible endorsement in the blurb or my Friedman or Ethan Bronner who called me up and was like, this is incredible. I'm going to buy this for my kids and what can I do to help? So um, I, I actually think that this is, I wrote it with a younger kind of younger liberal crowd in mind, but I'm seeing now that it's actually a wider net. I think when I think about the kind of college campus activist manuals in the past. Like when I was on a college campus, it was myths and facts. Um, and then Case for Israel came out. And there were these, 
you know, they were, they weren't accessible in the way that you're describing, where you're really making this easy for a younger, left-leaning audience to connect. It was much more academic. It was much more, I have a question, I need the academic answer that I'm in a debate on. Th- this this feels like the audience that's reading the skim to get their news, it, it's lighter, it's more accessible for that younger audience. Would you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. I wanted to make sure that I'm right something that is accessible for everyone. It's a very personal story as well. And yet it's severely historically accurate. I had a million and a half people from historians to professors in Berkeley to special like specialists in their field going through everything just to make sure that everything is 100% spot on. So yes, this is definitely intended to be more accessible. If you ever had a conversation with somebody and they're like, I don't understand, what can I read? That's the book to get them. This is definitely the book to get for them. So Noah, you come from an interesting family. Uh, if, if, if the book is correct. So it's a family of warriors and politicians. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So the family that I come from is extraordinary. So my family was um, highly involved in the establishment of Israel, as were a lot of people at the time. They were um, all Zionists. They came to Israel to help build the state. Um, my grandmother was one of the first members um, of the first kibbutz in Israel, Dganya, which is the first kibbutz in Israel. My great-grandfather father um, came to Jerusalem in 1922 and he started the Ministry of Industry and Trade and he brought to Israel all of you know, the textile industry, the diamond industry, like he advocated for Jewish goods and buying Jewish goods. And my grandfather um, was not only Israel's first ambassador in like Nigeria, Liberia, Ivory Coast, um, Ghana, he was actually the first representative that the state of Israel sent to the continent of Africa. So in March 1956, yeah, before Ghana became a state when it was still a British colony called Gold Coast, um, the state, the new state of Israel, uh, was asked to send a representative, and they sent my grandfather, who was there alone wow. in a hotel room, um, working along on behalf of the state of Israel. So I tell the story of Israel through the story of my family, and. Um, this was something that I didn't set out to do. I set out to do like a, a fun, um, relatable, understand, easy to understand, simple guide to Israel. And my editor at Simon & Schuster was actually the one that kept pushing me to put more and more of like myself and my family. And I think at the end of the day, she was right. Um, it made it way more uh, personal for me as it is in my journey, but also for people to read. They, It's the best way, you know, the, the best way to relate to somebody is through um, kind of having them authentically share. And that's, that's what I did. And it was incredible to, to go through this process and um, you know, reading my grandmother's diaries <laughs> when she wrote all everything down to like everything, her childhood in Russia and how she came and to the boat and the trip that they had and the food that she ate. And the first night when they were there in Afula, it was amazing. I felt like, a whisper from generations. I felt like she, she wrote that for me to do something with it. And no, what do you, what do you think? Uh, and this is to ask you to sort of be a little hypothetical. What do you think your, your grandparents would want people to take from their granddaughter's book here? 
right? What do you think that that the message to the wider diaspora community is, uh, you know, I oftentimes think about what my grandparents would want me to be living as sort of a Zionist and and as a proud Jew and a proud American. What do you think that your grandparents, if they could sort of see, and they do see, right, uh, your book and and what it's doing for, uh, what what do they want people to take from their granddaughter's reflections on their life? I think what um, all of our... um, ancestors would want us to take from this and generally um, is not to take Israel for granted. I think that we're in a position right now in which we're very, um, we're very lucky to be as, as the Jewish people to be, um, you know, relatively free in the world. Like there's no, we don't have the same oppression and, and people don't in various countries, we, we we're not allowed to do things as we used to in, in previous years. And the Jews have a state for a place for self-determination and Jewish liberation. And this is something that I think, um, I think some people kind of take this for granted. I know I have. Growing up as an Israeli in Israel, I was like, yeah, Israel's always been around. It's been around for It's always going to be around. And only as I grew up, I realized, first of all, just the miracle that is the Jewish state reemerging. And also um, how we need to be very careful and watch it and guard it and protect it. So I think that's a, a big thing. Let's not take Israel for granted. It's important for all of us to have it there and be safe. Over the course of doing your research and talked about going through diaries, et cetera, did you learn things you just never knew about? Were there stories you just were like, wow, I, I never knew this happened? I yeah, uh, uh, So many. Like so many. Are you talking about personal stories or the stories of like... Yeah, both. Both. Personal and your family and also for Israel itself. Yeah. Listen, so many. Talk about... Okay. Talk about the first history book about Israel written by a woman, right? My grandmother in her diaries wrote a story of Chavat HaNashim. All right, the the female, the women's farm. It was in 1926, and they called themselves a part of the liberated women. Anashima Mishuchot. Okay, they um, had a group. They 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 created this group of women with a female guide. They, in order to prove to them to everybody and to themselves that they don't need a man, and they received like a tent from the Jewish yeshuv and a guide named Zabin who would teach them how to grow vegetables because if they weren't, you know, they, they couldn't, they had, didn't have anything to eat and just threw them into the wilderness somewhere east of Haifa to like fend for themselves and like create, start growing stuff out of the land, creating an agriculture community of women in, in the, in 1926. It's extraordinary. I read this and I was, I was blown away and she's describing how they had the best time. And there's only one, you know, one man there that was sometimes come over to help them guard. And he would, was the one who harnessed the, the donkey. And they all went, no, we're going to harness the donkey ourselves, teach us how to do this. And just think about these, this extraordinary women, young adults that are leaving their like homes in Europe and coming to this weird and dangerous and you know barren land and like okay great let's let's rebuild a country it's extraordinary it's crazy one other question i have is you know when you were deciding how you wanted to write this book obviously you have that audience in mind a lot of books like this in the past paper over problems in israel right they sort of Uh there's uh enough of people out there attacking israel why do we need a book to discuss you know internal problems let's focus on the good things but you know you this is a fresh take you really sort of take on issues head on how did you make that decision that i want that in the book and how did you come up with your sort of tactic of how you were going to 
you know, take that on? It's a great question. I'm so happy you say that because it's important to understand that um, I do not gloss over Israel's problems. There isn't a single country in the world that doesn't have problems. That isn't a single country in the world that is unblemished with uh, past actions. And even when you weigh everything together, you still have a good case for Israel. And I knew that I can't write a book that doesn't tackle the 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 the, the thorny issues like the settlements, like the the sectarian. Um, ethnic kind of um, um, issues within the country, all these things that I know, the the religious, the orthodox, the Haredi, I'm giving a real um, overview of the good and the not so good because I've been involved in so many conversations that were hard and tough conversations among my friends that they brought up to me all these, all these questions. And I don't think it's authentic to discuss Israel without talking about what the settlements are, what can we, what's the green line versus, you know, the, 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 the West Bank and to give everybody an honest perspective. I wanted to make sure that the audience and the people who read this book and the people who recommend this book, they know that they can do this wholeheartedly. This is not Israeli propaganda. I don't work for the government. I don't work for any Jewish organization. I'm, I'm, I've done this on my own for myself and for people who are interested in this. And um, it was crucial for me to actually handle this. I knew that it's not going to be an authentic book if I don't actually give everybody all the answers. Because if you're going to buy this book as a listener right now and you don't get the answer to the tough questions that you have been asked, then I haven't done my job. I wanted to give the readers the, the the answers to the questions that I know that they're being asked. So Noah, you are really at the leading edge of bringing Israeli TV to America. And now it seems like everywhere you turn on every streaming service, we have another great Israeli show that Americans just can't get enough of. Why do you think Israeli TV has blown up so much in, in America? Oh, wow. That's another great question. Um, so first of all, yeah, I was, I'm very um, lucky to have been the first to bring an Israeli television format to the U.S. It's in treatment for HBO, and it was um, at the time was so unheard of. There wasn't even a claw in the contract um, to address um, foreign sales, foreign, wow. foreign, foreign sales. Yeah, I know. It was crazy. I was like, I came to the creator. I'm like, I'm going to sell you a show to HBO. He looked at me as if I was insane. And uh, we did three seasons, 145 episodes, 12 Emmys and Golden Globe nominations, Peabody Award, and now we're shooting fourth season. And what happened as a result was the Israeli television format market um, was created in America. I I think there's a very clear answer to that. And it was very um, obvious to me from the beginning. There are two, this is twofold. The reason that these shows are so successful, number one is necessity is the mother of all invention. And with 9 million people, which some of them Haredi, some of them the Arabs, some of the whatever that aren't particularly interested in specific content, you have a very small market. If you have a small market, you don't have a lot of ad sales. If you don't have a lot of ad sales, you don't have a lot of money to produce the show. And on the flip side of it, you have a very opinionated audience. So a bunch of Israelis who will be like, I don't like this and just flick the channel. As a result, you can't rely on um, choppers, explosions, special effects. You can't rely on anything in the content creation process to kind of detract from an amazing story. So Israeli television shows have an amazing story 
they're they're very well written they're interesting and they're authentic and i think that's what helps um this explosion of israeli content around the world because people recognize this it just has to be great on the page if it's not great on the page it's not getting on air and that's unique we're going to shift gears right now to our lighthearted lightning round questions. Um, so the first question is, where is the best falafel or shawarma in Israel? Oh, the best falafel is Shlomo Banav on Nordau Street. No question. Okay. Everybody's writing that down first. We're going to give them a little bit of time writing that down. Very good. Very good. All right. Next question. Uh, Yiddish is coming back in the United States. We, we've done some reporting on that at Jewish Insider. Do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Uh, Tukas would be one. And, um, oh, I wish I had, um, it's like Fashtaste. Like, do you get it? Like that. Perfect. Sounds good. We get it. We get it now. Perfect. How about one TV show that most people don't know about, but should definitely watch? The Last Tsar about the Romanovs. It's a Netflix, it's a Netflix show about the, I, I, I wrote about this era in the context of my grandmother, because my grandmother used to tell me that story of, of the, of the Bolshevik revolution and all of that. And then I, when I was writing about it, I found the show and I was floored. It's so great. It's a hybrid uh, documentary and uh, reenactment. It's so good. Last question. If you could be alive in any period of Jewish history where Jews have lived in Israel, which era would it be? Oh, uh, now. I think I think it's now. Because when again, after researching for so long, every the, you know, there's been so much violence throughout history. Like we don't we take it for granted. I think Yuval Noah Harari is the one who actually pointed that out so eloquently how you know, this is actually the least violence uh, period of time in in modern society, right? Not all over the world. So when you kind of read of what was going down there at, in the, you know, in the old Jewish period in, in the old kind of biblical land and I don't know, the Pale of Settlements, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to go back there. So I think now it's a pretty good time to be, um, to be a Jew, despite all its problems and, you know, anti-Semitism becoming hip again. I would choose right now. Noah Tishby, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Israel, a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth. We look forward for others reading it and welcome you back on the podcast in the future. We're fortunate to have for our second guest, uh, Maggie Haberman, New York Times, Washington reporter, uh, also a veteran of Politico, the New York Post, the New York Daily News is also a political analyst for CNN, award-winning journalist, uh, trained me when I was a young flack coming up in politics to return reporters' phone calls very promptly. Maggie Haberman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been interviewed a ton in recent years, and rightfully so for your coverage of Donald Trump and the Trump administration, but we want to go back. Your dad grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. He went to your Shiva, as we understand it. Uh, your mom was the daughter of a prominent journalist. What was it like to grow up in the Haberman family uh, with that kind of background on both sides? So journalism was sort of always with us, but but not um, not what journalism meant most of the time. Usually, it was the impact of having a journalist father, which you know, as as um, devoted as I am to this profession, I will tell you and my children would tell you that it's just, it's not ideal for kids. And so in, in the case of, of my family, when I was growing up, my parents divorced when I was five. Um, 
my father moved to a foreign country for the first of three overseas assignments when I was eight. Um, and my mother worked in PR. Um, my parents met at the New York post, um, which is actually also where I met my husband, but that's a different, different issue. Um, my father's job was not something I sought to emulate. Um, again, because we didn't, we didn't see a lot of him, but we did always know that he was doing something important. We always knew that he was doing something global and impactful. Um, you know, he, he covered, um, a number of stories around Asia, uh, when he was the bureau chief in Japan, uh, in Tokyo, he, uh, covered the Romanian revolution. Um, he was the Israeli bureau chief for four years and actually left two months before Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. Um, a story that I think he was very sad that he was not there to cover. Um, but my memories of, of learning about, I have this very distinct memory of, of him talking about how you cover a story, which is, it's, it's not, um, particularly pedantic other than it was, it was instructive. Um, we were watching the year of living dangerously, which is about a journalist in a war torn country and spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, but it ends with the journalist leaving the assignment when it becomes too dangerous. And my father watched it with my brother and me. And he said, this, this is not realistic. And I said, why? And he said, because no journalist would leave the story. And that always stayed with me. And that is, that was his ethos. And so that was sort of how I came to understand, um, what your attachment is to your story. Um, but it was, it was a lot of travel. It was a lot of, it was a lot of sort of living vicariously through my father. And there's a family photo of you sitting on Ed Koch's lap. I think we've seen, I mean, was that indicative of your childhood or, you know, for listeners who may not be familiar, like what was the backstory with that? <laughs> it's not, it's not the knee slapper. You might think, um, my father covered, um, city hall, uh, when Koch was mayor, uh, he covered it for the times. My father started out as the, um, uh, city college stringer for the times he was fired for, it's a long story too long to get into, but if a pretty minor journalistic, uh, indiscretion, but in, in this day, it would be in this day and age, but, um, it was very problematic at the time went to work for the New York post for 10 years and then got rehired to the times. I think he's the only person I know who was ever rehired, but, um, uh, he was the bureau chief in his uh, city hall on his second incarnation at the times. Uh, and I don't remember whether it was that he suggested I, I do this or whether I was asking to meet Koch. I can't remember. I, I don't know, but, um, the city hall photographer took a bunch of pictures of me sitting and having a conversation with Ed Koch. And, uh, I wrote a story about it for the kids section of the New York daily news, which was my first byline. Now you should tell us about any impact you think, being Jewish or growing up Jewish may have had on how you grew up and, and, and how you do your job today? Uh, it's a great question. I, 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 I can't say that it speaks to how I do my job. I can say that when I was growing up, I did not, my father, as you mentioned, grew up in the yeshiva. Um, my brother and I were not raised particularly religious. Um, I, but I became actually more acutely aware of the fact that people around the world uh, often don't view Jews positively during one of my father's foreign assignments. I think it was Japan, uh, where somehow it came up when we were, we were playing somewhere with other kids 
somehow it came up that we were Jewish. Um, I don't think I've ever actually told this story. And one of them, upon finding out that we were Jewish, sort of screeched in, in, in horror slash surprise and said, does that mean we were at a pool? And he said, does that mean if I threw a quarter at the bottom of the pool, you'd go and chase it down? Wow. And then, and then something about a big, it was, it was shocking. Um, and so, uh, that was, um, and I remember telling my father about it later that night and he, he was, he was pretty astonished. Um, I don't think, I don't think he was astonished that, that anti-Semitic tropes, um, were still used, but I think just, just how raw it was in these, in these kids. Um, and I was always very aware of that. Um, I mean, that, that memory stayed with me for a long time. It was not the last time that I encountered, you know, sort of biblical anti-Semitic tropes. Um, in terms of doing my job, I think that I am mind, like I said, I don't think it, I don't think it specifically plays into how I do my job. I do think it made me um, or contributed to my other part of that. It was just also because I come from the world of New York media. During the 2016 campaign, when David Duke was talking up Donald Trump, there was a pretty muted reaction from the national media, and I was pretty surprised by it. Um, and I think that focusing on just sort of the strain of anti-Semitism among some Trump reporters um, was something I was more conscious of. So we, we, we've we read and heard stories about the various careers you've had other than being being a journalist. <laughs> what were, what were, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what are some of the other things you considered or did uh, before you became a world-renowned journalist that is sort of – that every other reporter in America is trying to catch up with? Boy, that's, boy, that's not true, but thanks. Um, the, I, didn't do, I didn't do a ton of um, – a ton of other jobs. The main one that I did was I was a bartender and, um, which is probably what you're thinking of, but, uh, and I did that for several years before I started working at the post, the New York post. And, um, and while I was working there the first few years, because I wasn't a full-time reporter and the pay wasn't enough to pay my rent. Um, just, just working as a clerk at the post, uh, bartending was, was pretty good pay, but it was also a very effective way of learning how to talk to people. And so I have always really uh, appreciated the experience that I had. Um, I, I worked for a time at George magazine very briefly. Um, uh, but doing clerical stuff, I, 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 you know, the, it, the, really I, I joined the post the New York post pretty quickly out of college. Well, I kind of want to know what, what was there like a, like a specialty drink you made? Like, is there something that like, even to this day, you're like, like, does your <laughs> husband be like, I mean, make me one of those. Like, you know, like, no, we're not, we're not, we're not big on alcohol in this house, but the, um, I uh, no, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a neighborhood bar and it was lots of vodka tonics and, and gin and tonics and, 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 grapefruit and vodka and, and, you know, some Long Island. I, there was always a crowd on Saturday nights that would want Long Island iced teas. Um, but, but no, there was nothing, nothing, nothing that would, would qualify. And now that also bartending has become much more of a, an exotic world of drinks. It, this was pretty basic. Did you ever pick up any like story ideas, like from the conversations you ever overhear something in the bar? You're like, well, we should, I should look at that. Uh, so it's funny that you asked that there was a, there was a story that I worked on that I, when I think I was still working there or had just stopped working there that related to, oh God, it was something about, 
again, this was at the post, but it had something to do with drugs and bars. Um, so there was some, there was briefly some overlap, but this was also, it was an, it was an upper West side. It's not there anymore, but it was an upper West. It was there for a long time. Upper West side bar that was sort of a fixture among some local politicos. Um, some actors in the neighborhood used to come in. Um, it was an eclectic group of people, but no, it was not, it was not a font of story ideas. Maggie, when we met, I was working for Mike when he, on his first run for mayor in the summer of two thousand one. It was the summer of it was the summer of Chandra Levy and Gary Condit. Yep. Um, and I remember actually talking to you on the morning of September eleventh, two thousand one, right after uh, the first impact. Um, you called into the office, and I had just talked to my brother, who was at Canal and West, um, and he had seen the impact. And I don't remember the specifics of the conversation, but I do remember how calm and focused and and professional you were even in the midst of this unspeakable tragedy um and i guess the question is how do you think uh 9-11 changed the news business and you know any personal reflections you want to offer about how maybe it affected you and 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 your career and, and life um i thank you for the kind words um i i have um I don't actually, I, re- I vaguely remember talking to you that morning. I more remember talking to Ed Schuyler, who was the spokesman. Yep. Well, I, I put through the call. Did you? Just, you okay. Know, um, everybody, everybody has their role to play. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but I remember Ed telling me that, um, that it was his understanding that there were three Bloomberg employees who were, who were trapped um, in the tower. I mean, I, the, so everything related to 9-11, for me personally, I went out, went, defined my next three years. I spent the next three years covering rebuilding at the trade center and the develop the redevelopment process covering the fallout um and the the responses and the the process among uh very large groups of victims relatives many of whom were not on the same page um uh not just about their own grief but about what should happen with remains with the rebuilding of the site uh it was it was all happening in the middle of a um uh of a uh, uh, re-election campaign for George Pataki, uh, which was 2002, I believe. And so I think there was that backdrop as well. Uh, and it and it obviously changed the contours of the the mayoral race that you were working in. Yep. Uh, the way it changed journalism is, is a great question. Um, I don't think it changed it permanently. I think that it became... There, it be, there was a there was this undercurrent of of sort of us versus them i think in a lot of the coverage um uh in terms of certainly in new york in terms of uh how um middle eastern countries were viewed i think that uh it changed new york in the sense that new york felt uh, New Yorkers were sort of gentler toward each other for at least for a time. Um, but the longer term impact, honestly, were the, you know, the forever wars in the Mideast um, and, and how we ended up getting into that. Um, I don't think that there is a lasting impact on journalism from those days other than the, the trauma that I think a lot of reporters suffered. So Maggie, I have this contention and Rich disagrees but I believe that as goes Jewish New York goes Jewish America. 
um, and that the the sort of heart and soul of Jewish Jewish America runs through the five boroughs and the and the burbs. I guess. Um, what do you think? Do you think I'm right, or do you side with uh, with Rich, who's actually a nice guy d- despite being a Trump? Uh, a former Trump staffer. Um, do you think that that's accurate? And do you think that, you know, or do you think that I'm just being, you know, one of these obnoxious guys who thinks the world stops at the Hudson River? I think you might be being a little bit of that New Yorker poster where it's like giant, you know, New York and then like the rest of the world is like way out there. Look, I mean, I think there is a specific cultural identity for New York Jews. I think that is true. Um, but, um, but I, you know, I certainly think that there are, there are Jews in, in Florida and in California and, and, uh, you know, Illinois and plenty of other places in the country who probably would take issue with the characterization. Um, New York is home to a large number of Jews. And so I think that that has, uh, has impacted the view. Um, but I think that, um, I think that what it means to be a Jew has been, um, uh, even within, (laughs) among other Jews, has been sort of appropriated in ways that I think is not always um, uh, a productive conversation. I want to get to uh, your coverage of the Trump administration, you know, because it's usually what people lead with. Uh, we didn't want to be cliche, uh, so so we'll uh, we'll get there. But before we do, yeah, I did want to just ask one more sort of media news type question. You've worked on a lot of different formats, um, the City Hall beat, the sort of national beat, um, startup digital, print, uh, traditional print now, um, you know, with the digital elements. Talk to me about, is there a favorite format you've had? Is there a most successful format you see of journalism today? Um, you know, what's your view on sort of where journalism is going? Look, I'm still very old school, and I'm a big believer in print, and I am a big believer in in deadlines um, that are not not you know the forever forever rolling deadlines of the internet, and I am a big believer in um, you know having time to work through a story and, and report it out and think. I mean, so I'll give you an example. Um, the and this is less that you're asking about journalism models and just more about the process of journalism, but Mike Schmidt. And Nick Fandos, two of my colleagues, and I did a story about Matt Gates um, approaching the White House about a pardon uh, went after the election, but while President Trump was still there. And initially, we thought we had it, and then, and then we got kind of nervous about—not nervous, but we got—we uh, wanted more, and so we waited another day, and then we waited another day, and. Um, and that produced a story that, that felt really durable. Um, I think in the internet era, that is much harder because I think the pressures are different. Um, you know, the internet has made, um, the internet is, is still not as accessible to everybody in the country as it should be. For those who do have internet access, uh, there is a level of connectivity in terms of the news that's existing nationally that didn't exist before. So I think that's productive, um, but, and good, but whether I think that, um, you know, online journalism, uh, is, is it's, it's also online journalism is not, I'm sorry, I'm sort of thinking this through as I'm talking, but online journalism, there's, there's not a monolith, right? I mean, there are different, lots of websites function differently. I mean, part of the problem with the news, model of online journalism is there are a lot of websites that are partisan websites where unless news readers are, are very literate news readers, they don't necessarily understand that there's sort of a choose your own adventure aspect to this. And I do think that that's problematic. Okay. The, the question that everyone wants to know, 
that you probably get asked most, what was it like to be like the best sourced? Everyone wants to know what you're about to write about what's going on inside the Oval Office, inside the residence during Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, I very much appreciate the kind words, but there were plenty of great reporters out there um, who were were uh, equally sourced. Among them, Jonathan Swan at Axios, Josh Dossie at the Washington Post is an incredibly good reporter. Um, uh, there were there were folks at the journal, uh, Rebecca Ballhouse at the Wall Street Journal. Um, but um, but I do think that um, uh, it was a very strange. I, I, I'm never going to be able to fully explain what the last four years were like. Um, I st- just the sheer volume that was coming at us. Um, the the it was an, it was a a privilege to be covering this. I um, I think that one of the stranger things is that Donald Trump makes people characters in his movie, and I ended up becoming one of those characters and it led a lot of people to think that they knew me or knew my motives or knew why I did things or how I did things. I've just, I've read and seen things that are just a gazillion light years off. Um, and there's just sort of nothing I can do. It just is what it is. But, um, but that's, um, that's where we're at. I mean, I, I, that's where it was at. So, so if, if he's like tweeting out against you, if he's talking about you in interviews, which he was, I mean, as a journalist, do you, does it make you excited? Like, wow, my, I'm, I'm breaching all the way to the president. Yeah, like no. saying my name or is it, no. or is it sort of like, Oh my God, this is bad. I mean, I'm not even like, this is bad. It's just that like he, he, when he attacks reporters, he sends a whole swarm of his followers after them. And, and he does this, I mean, he does this to citizens too, to be clear, but I mean, he can't do it anymore because he's on Twitter, but but he would do this and I think he loved the effect. And the thing was when he would move on to another fight with another reporter or another whomever, his fans just stayed around, you know, hovering at his former target. And so that was very difficult. Um, I mean, there's a story I often tell about uh, waking up the morning of my daughter's birthday three years ago, um, almost three years ago to the day. And, the first thing I saw was a text from Mike Schmidt saying, don't worry about the tweet. And I hadn't seen what he was talking about. And so Trump had done a three tweet storm about a story I had done about Michael Cohen that ended up becoming an, an instance of possible obstruction in the, in the Mueller report. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's been, none of this is normal and none of this was natural. It was, it was strange and uncomfortable and, and, um, uh, you know, there were, there were, there were parts of the, 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 I was, a lot of the work was very satisfying. Um, but this was not an easy four years by the stretch of the imagination. So the question everyone wants to know is, and I, we understand if you can't answer it specifically, but how many times was the president actually a source for things that, you know, I would never answer uh, that. I know, Jerry, I know. I have to ask it. Right. Um, but, but I, I guess the follow up to that is, it, you know, it seemed like game of Thrones, um, when you were reading what was coming out of this white house in terms of the way, like there were so many factions and so many, uh, you know, people leaking on, on each other and, and personal fights and personal agendas. And, you know, every white house has some of that, but you know, why do they do it so much? Was it just the chaos of his presidency or, you know, by design? No, this was, this was, this was, this is just the way that 
the way that Donald Trump world, Donald Trump's world always is. It's the way it was when he was in business. It's the way his, certainly the way his campaign was. I mean, I, I compared it in an interview in 2017 to like, this wasn't like the jets and the sharks. It was like the bloods and the crips. Like it was literally like it was just the way that the, these folks were going at each other. It was, it was gang warfare. Um, and you know, Trump wasn't always fully aware of it because he wasn't seeing all of it. And if it didn't direct, you know, what he cared about when he would talk about leaks and yell about leaks was the stuff about him. But often these folks were just leaking on each other. Um, it was, it was, I mean, I remember trying to explain to the, to my colleagues in DC what this was going to be like and that this was what the campaign had been like. And people just had to live it themselves to believe it. Uh, obviously, I, I mean, maybe you, you you probably agree with this. The, the level of discord between a president and the media was, you know, just un, un, unlike anything we'd ever really seen in modern times. The attacks against the media that he did, all-time highs, etc. But at the same time, I think the knock from folks, at least on the right, is that a lot of times the White House press corps took the bait. They took the bait too much, and they rose into sort of this fight that the president wanted, and you were part of a war rather than covering. Do you see that any sort of responsibility on the media side at the time in hindsight of we should have done this differently, we should have had a different strategy to cover him so that we didn't become part of his narrative? Yeah, we should have made clear very early on that um, he was not telling the truth on certain things. I mean, I just respectfully, I really reject your premise. The idea that the, he he declared war on the media on literally day one of his presidency. He sent Sean Spicer out there to say that pictures of his crowds were wrong, that the media was out to get him. That is a choice that he made. I understand that that is, that is how he felt. He then went from that to talking in front of the wall of the wall of stars at the CIA about how his crowd size was being not covered properly. I guess I would turn the question back to you. Do you think that that's what a president should do? And you think it's the media's fault that the president did that? No, I mean, I, I, I would not defend those things that he did. I think the question is, and maybe it's not for print journalists, maybe this is more of a problem of what has become of TV journalists, but I would watch a press conference and then I would watch the coverage and it would be very clear that the personalities, the talent was making the press conference about them sometimes. Right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for, you know, how m- m- moments in the briefing room literally became just that. That's a, that's, that's not... that's a different issue. If you're talking about, if you want to have a conversation about the volume of, of stories about the various investigations, I think that that's a a perfectly fine discussion. I think if you want to have a conversation about um, the use of the word lie, whether it should have been done more often or not, there's obviously been a big debate about it. My executive editor at the times has spoken pretty bluntly about it over the years, about how he viewed it um, and, and, and the way the times viewed it. But I think the idea that the media was somehow unfair to somebody who called the media the enemy of the people is a bit of a straw man, respectfully. I I guess my only question after that would be, and this is my last one on this thread, is – I'll, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of that, that that's that's all correct. I'll, I'll accept that that premise as, as correct. I don't think it's the benefit of the doubt. It's a fact. Everything I just said is a fact. I'll accept everything so. you just said as as fact, premise, correct. But we have a reality in the country where 
half the country does not have confidence in the media today or maybe more. And we have a very polarizing type audience for media where everyone's getting their news from wherever they think they should get it. I'm just asking as somebody who went to journalism school, who, who, you know, saw journalism in different light 20 years ago, where do we go from here as a country? How do we rebuild trust? How do we get more Americans to stop the polarization inside where they're getting their news? Is it even possible or is this just how it's going to be? I think this is how it's going to be. I think this is how it's been trending for two decades. And I think laying the blame at the media is, is, is convenient. But I think that, um, uh, I think we can't tell people what to read. All we can do is, is, the the actual role of journalism and all we can do is when we make mistakes own up to them but uh, you're you're respectfully conflating a bunch of different issues um as well as people don't trust the media do you think that it had something to do with the president calling us the enemy of the people over four years and saying everything we wrote was a lie and fake news i'm just wondering do you not see that that played a huge role in erosion and trust now erosion trust in the media was already on a downward trajectory it has been for years a lot of that was our own doing. I will stipulate all of that. But the idea that like, this was just this, this typical four years and gosh, darn it, we should realize this is our fault that people feel this way. I just don't understand how you can separate it out from, from what was being said. Cause, cause I, cause I can't. My, my personal view is I've talked to journalists who say, you know what? We've reflected on it, and I would have asked questions differently to just, you know, to just basically set up, you know, here's the factual differences, and we just go do our reporting, and we're just not going to get into a daily fight. We're just going to keep, you know, keep keep the... What I'm saying to you is he wanted a fight. Now, I understand that your initial question was, did we take the bait? Um, uh, let's just, for argument's sake, say that reporters took the bait from him. Um, reporters are still humans. We're not robots, right? So um, at the end of the day, when you try provoking someone, as the president often did with the press, yeah, like it's going to get his desired reaction sometimes. You know, was that great? No, but just literally you're saying the president, I mean, just just ask yourself this: what you just asked in a different context. Um, someone is is yelling at you. You yelled back. Isn't that your fault? I mean, I, I just, that's that is literally your question. So I hear what you're saying. I think that there is a really thorough, nuanced conversation that could be had, but I don't think what your question, your question is that. Shifting gears a little bit, um, you're writing a book uh, about the Trump administration. Um, I, I mean, we don't, we, we want, you know, we want to read the book. We're excited for the book to come out. And, uh, but are you going to be interviewing the president? You can, you can, you can read it all when it comes out, Jared. Don't want, don't want to do any spoilers. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, there, no, no, there's, listen, there's questions I have to ask because I have editors just like anybody else. Um, I, I appreciate and, that. goes for me too. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to, we're going to shift gears to the fun stuff now. First one is, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? God's sake. Um, sorry. I was afraid you were going to expose my, um, my, my thin knowledge of Yiddish. Um, I don't, I don't have a favorite. I say oi a lot, but I don't think that makes me unique among Jews. No, but that's that's still a favorite. <laughs> uh, what book are you reading right now, or have you recently read that you would recommend? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, what, so uh, I'm not uh, I'm not currently reading anything that does not relate to Trump. So if you don't want to read about Trump. 
probably I'm not your person to follow a suggestion right now. But but I would recommend everybody read Wayne Barrett's biography of Trump. Yeah, that's a good one. I think I I recommend anything Wayne Barrett's ever written. Me too. Honestly. And City for Sale. Uh, yeah, City for Maggie. We're ch- you you were channeling. There you go. Um, what do you think is the best bagel in New York City? Shelsky's. Really. Oh. Really. Yeah, that's been a, that's been a controversial. Um, opinion better than Essa bagel but for me better than Essa bagel yeah i'm not a big Essa bagel person if 2020 was the year of covid 2021 is the year of blank oh god um uh hope i would say vaccines are already providing hope by the way can i go back to i'm sorry to do this but can i just go back to that question about the media the I just I would like to just no I know because I'm really like I'm sorry but that really a surprised me and b I just don't I I don't understand how you can ask that question after 2020 I don't understand how you can ask the question of of just on its own of um, do I agree that there were things that the media did wrong got wrong made mistakes with over the course of the four years 100 percent. During the course of the la- of the final twelve months, there was a president openly telling the pe- the, the the public he governed that a, a, a pandemic was just going to go away. Um, there was a president who uh, took a took a, a walk on June first across Lafayette Square. Um, one of the most controversial things that I have ever seen take place. Um, uh, while pr- while mostly peaceful protesters were shoved aside. So that he could visit a historic church, or and if that wasn't the reason, which they've argued, some of them have argued it wasn't, it was still what people saw, and a president who repeatedly insisted that an election that he lost was stolen from him. So I don't know how we, even if you thought everything that you think after the last twelve months of the administration, I think it's very hard to then sort of look at these two things as on the one hand, but on the other hand. I agree. Jared characterized me as a Trump staffer. I didn't work for Donald Trump. I worked for the National Security Council, just so we're clear. <laughs> that is actually an important distinction. Um, I, dur- <laughs> dur- during the Trump administration, I was brought in by John Bolton and left shortly Got after it. he was shown the Got door. It. Uh, so I'm not here to defend Donald Trump, but I, but I, you know, I, I am, I'm a moderate Republican who is channeling like just very mainstream thinking within Republican circles mm-hmm. that we would watch these press conferences. And yes, we would be like, I can't believe this guy does what he does. Like, but also like, God, like why? Oh, God, they're just so unfair to him. It's just so crazy. But do you think, do you, do you think that part of why you're doing that is because it's an easier rationalization? So you don't have to get that angry at the person you support? No, no, I, okay. I don't think so. I don't think okay. because there were a lot of things that were going on during the, 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 the pandemic early days that nobody knew what exactly was going to happen. And I think in his own mind, he's, he's trying to give hope to people. He's trying to like not have people commit suicide. I, I don't know what's going through Donald Trump's mind when he's doing this stuff, but I mean, Lafayette square, you know, is an appropriate national debate to have and, and to cover it in that way. But like, it's, I just think it used to be, we'll just find the sources. It's, it, you know, it's like, we're not the advocates we're going to I'm trying to think of like a way to like frame this. I, I guess it's a question of I'm trying to like actually have like a real journalistic thinking here. Right? Why I say this is it's no longer about just finding two sides and presenting both sides to the public and saying, OK, here are the two two versions. You, you know, it's like we're going to be the arbiters of what is right and wrong. And then we're going to decide how to present that because if one side's well, just 
I disagree with I disagree with your characterization. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Oh. Maggie, we appreciate it. I think that's all we got. Thanks for having me, guys. House coming down, yeah. From the sky to the crowd, yeah. We gonna sing it out loud, yeah. Black Jewish and I'm proud, yeah. Jared, that was a great interview. Uh, two great interviews, I should say. Um, awesome to have Maggie Haberman with us. Uh, that was a very thoughtful respectful, intense conversation, I thought, uh, there towards the end. Great to hear insights into her life, her upbringing, how she views journalism, etc. cetera. Uh, and then, you know, this is what we do on the show. We tackle issues of the day that are sensitive, and we try to do it thoughtfully and, and, and respectfully. Agreed. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, and tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Also, please come follow us on Clubhouse when you're on and Twitter at J.I. Podcast. And remember to tell your friends, family, neighbors, anybody on the street you just remotely think might be interested to search for Limited Liability Podcasts on whatever platform they get their podcasts. Until next time. This is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah.